Film runs through our veins and continuously makes us interact with it. I'm your host, Edward Frumkin, and this is Real Print. In this episode, University of Missouri's Professor Emeritus, Stacy Wolfel, discusses the formation of the Jonathan B. Murray Center, the evolution of journalism, and working with students on Keep the Cameras Rolling, the Pedro Zamora Way. Finally, in today's concluding thought, I talk about my workload that comes into being an independent film critic and podcaster. Some portions are recorded on Zoom, so bear that in mind when you hear the audio and enjoy the show. Hi, Stacy. Thank you for coming to today's Real Print today. Happy to be here. Well, I always start off with asking, uh, what is your first film or journalistic or documentary memory as your accomplished journalist and <laughs> professor and I have a book and movie out? Well, the um, my first film memory probably goes back to uh, my childhood, obviously, as most does. And so this was in the 1960s. And I know that my parents, uh, who were movie fans as well, would go to the drive-in movies um, because then they could let my brother and I have a twin brother. Um, and so we could sleep in the back while they uh, watched the movie. And so um, I, I, I'm not sure I can pinpoint the exact movie, but I have memories as a pretty young child of not sleeping in the back and in fact staying awake and watching the movies i want to say you know like a james bond movie or something like that would have been it let's say um um you know you only live twice or one of those was probably one of my very first memories thunderball or one of those when i was probably just about three years old three or four years old uh and you know i think i maybe that started my lifelong love of movies Mm -hmm. and what about that james bond movie kept you awake instead of like sleeping in the back like with your brother? I don't, I don't know. You know, back then, I, I don't know how many people, uh, you know, watching and listening here have been to a drive-in movie. It's become sort of a, a lost uh, Amer- piece of Americana. But back then, now if you go, if you find one, they typically broadcast through the radio in your car, but that was not the technology of the day. So there were these big metal speakers on poles and you would pull into your spot and pull the speaker over, had a wire, of course. And so, and it was kind of loud, it wasn't great sound, but I think, you know, it was the, just everything going on, you know, it'd be, it was just weird and different to be out in the car late at night like that and supposed to sleep in the back. And then the speaker was blaring the, the film score and soundtrack into the car. And so I think all those things, it was just so different than what I was used to. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. And uh, like then what got you interested in more with journalism later on in your life? Yeah, when I was in high school, my uh, career plans were to be a uh, professional musician, an orchestra musician. I played all of the brass instruments and I thought that was going to be my career path. And as a senior in high school, my uh, I, I had just electives to take and all of my friends were taking the journalism class. And I'm like, okay, I'll take journalism too. And I'd already taken up photography. I liked photography just as a you know hobby. And I started to do uh, photography work and reporting work in high school, decided to change my idea for a major, decided to go to Mizzou and pursue a journalism degree. Uh, and I did start on the photojournalism side, but ultimately didn't like working in the darkroom that much. Everything was analog then. We had to print, you know, develop and print our pictures. 
Um, so I moved over to another visual area of television uh, and that really stuck. I really loved that. And so I loved doing that as a student at Mizzou and at KOMU, the TV station there. And then I, I went to work in Florida when I graduated in Orlando at the NBC affiliate there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did remember seeing some old footage of you on reporting and uh, what did you like about being on camera briefly before transitioning to being a news director? Yeah, I actually didn't care that much about being on camera. It wasn't that important for me to be on TV. I just like making TV. So we at the time and, and they still do people at KOMU become reporters first. And so I, I, you know, the skills involved with that were fine. I liked gathering information and writing. I just didn't care that much about being on camera. So when I graduated, I had the choice of becoming a reporter or a photographer, and I went the photographer route. And so I've never really been an on-camera journalist except for in school. Okay. I, I do want to bring up that. I do remember they used to be on the marching band at Mizzou. And uh, like, did you still think they would be having a musician career? No, I, you know, that was one way to keep, you know, I enjoyed playing musical instruments and, you know, it was part of what sort of drove me away from it as a career because I would go to concerts, classical music concerts, and it didn't look like the musicians were having any fun. And I, it was fun for me to do it. And so I did through college, all four years in college, I was in Marching Mizzou, our marching band here played the sousaphone, uh, which most people would probably call the tuba, but there is a difference. And, um, but, you know, once... I graduated, there wasn't really much of a call to do that anymore. And so I'm terribly out of practice with, with that. I don't own a, a sousaphone or any other brass instrument, so I don't get a chance to practice. So I, I just don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you already have great beginnings, like what made you return to Mizzou to mm -hmm. eventually have a doctorate in poli-sci and then eventually being the news director at KOMU? Yeah, I was, uh, I'd been in my Florida job uh, for five years, going on five years, and I was sort of itching to leave. And I was up for, I, I had a job offer in Minnesota that, uh, you know, sounds superficial now, but I was living in Florida and Minnesota was a little too cold. They had the, the bad decision to interview me on January 2nd when I went up to interview. And so I was happy to get the, um, the offer, but the pay wasn't that great. And I didn't want to deal with the cold, to be honest. And then I was sort of waiting. I had a, an offer on the table from Boston to go work at a TV station there, but then they had a hiring freeze and I was sort of waiting that out. And one of my Mizzou professors came to do a writing seminar at my station in Florida. And he's like, you know, we have a faculty opening that you'd be great for. Um, and it was a time when my wife and I were thinking about starting a family. She's from Columbia. So her parents were there. My parents were nearby in St. Louis. And you know, the chance to go back and, and give back to Mizzou, where I had graduated just five years earlier, seemed like a great idea. The Boston thing was still on hold. And so I ended up taking the, the offer to join the faculty at Mizzou, working in the KOMU newsroom. Um, and after four years in that post I was hired into, I moved up to be the news director there. Um, and around the same time, started working on first a master's degree and then a PhD, which I decided to get in political science. Not that I knew everything about journalism and I could have gotten journalism degrees, but I thought it was, you know, a more well-rounded education if I pursued those in another field. And so that's why I did that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, what are some of the things you do as a news director for the station? Yeah. So the news director is the CEO of the newsroom, if you want to think of it that way. So he's the person or she's the person in charge of um, all of the 
all the people who work in the newsroom in the case of KOMU, where it's a mix of professional employees and students. I was the, the in charge of all of those people. So in charge of all of the editorial content, in charge of getting the newscast out on the air, in charge of making budgets and hiring people and firing people, not that I had to do that very often. Um, and you just get to run the newsroom, which was a great thrill for me. I did it for 24 years and, and really enjoyed, you know, having control of the whole editorial product like that. And, and of course, enjoyed teaching. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that happen within like the last minute, like how do you determine what gets on the news and what gets not on the news? Well, we have some standards of newsworthiness, you know, is it local? Is it important? Is it happening now? You know, all of these things that we use to decide what's newsworthy. Um, and then there's, you know, so that's sort of the science of it. I think the art of it is to decide what your viewership wants and the people in central Missouri want something a little different than say the people in Chicago on, on what's on the news. So getting to know your audience, deciding what they want um, and getting out there and sort of earning the trust and respect of your audience doing the kind of reporting that's important to them doesn't sort of race to the bottom for the lowest common denominator. That was always important for me. On top of all that, we had a teaching mission to teach young journalists how to do this and to go out. And I think I had about 3000 students through the, the time that I was there, M many of them still out working in television today. So it's, it's fun. I was just talking to one earlier today, uh, talking about drones for another class. And she's working in St. Louis and is a drone pilot. And it's fun just to catch up with people and see them and talk to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also like seeing cross like that for several decades of news, even transition from social media, what were the similarities and differences in the time of you seeing how news has been covered? Yeah, well, yeah, it was a time of great change. I'm not sure any anybody could have a career in news at another time that would change as much as I did. I, I tell people when I started at KOMU as an employee, not as a student, we had three newscasts a day, um, you know, one at noon, one at six and one at 10 p.m. Had kind of a little quickie thing in the morning uh, during the NBC Today show, but we could pretty much go in in the morning, figure out what we we're gonna do. And then at 10.30 at night, just turn off the lights and lock the door and go home and not start again until the next day. So we saw, rapid changes in technology. The equipment we used to gather the news was all analog. I mean, it was on film when I first started to do this and then we moved to video and then to digital, you know, nonlinear editing and, and digital capture. Um, we saw the 24 hour news cycle develop so that we couldn't turn off the lights at 1030. We had to, to be there all night and we saw the consumption of news go up. So now KOMU has six newscasts a day that, you know, to, instead of totaling about 90 minutes, now total about uh, five and a half hours, I think, uh, total of news. And people work there 24 hours a day around the clock. And this is true of, of all TV stations. So we really saw a vast change come there. Um, some things got better. I think investigative reporting and in-depth reporting is probably as good as it's ever been on television. Uh, some things did not get as good. There's a... Um, uh, a chase to capture viewers with sort of flashy crime stories and things that don't really have any impact on people. Like we could have a whole separate podcast for me to go into, you know, what's wrong with crime coverage on, on television today. But, um, you know, the business has changed. It's, it tries to scrape a lot more profits out of it than it used to, which is generally bad for news gathering. And I think bad for audiences, but there's some good players out there who are trying to 
to do better. So it's been a fascinating time to be a journalist for the last 40 years, to be honest. Despite all these differences, how do you maintain the same Missouri method <laughs> well, that, you know, I always say to students, if they haven't been your former students, I should say alumni, if they haven't been to the newsroom for a while, they'll ask what's changed. They'll say, you know, despite the fact that it looks different and the tools are different than when you were here 10, 20, 30 years ago, the process is remarkably the same that student journalists come in and they pitch ideas and we work it over to figure out what the best thing to cover will be. And then they go out in the field and do interviews and get video and collect information. I come back and write all that up and the deadline is constantly pressing them. So that part of it is the same as when I was a student and when you know that, those thousands of alumni were students and it is for the students now. It, on the surface, it looks different, but underneath it's the same process. Hands-on, learn by doing. Mm -hmm. And after doing this several years in the news setting, um, what got you into being the director of the Murray Center of Documentary Journalism. Yeah, I, you know, I had a, an interest in documentaries and long form presentations and we would do, do some long form work. They wouldn't be documentaries in the way that people would think of something they'd see at Sundance now, but we had students who occasionally wanted to do something longer. So we might do a 30 minute or even an hour long examination of a of an issue or a topic or an event um, in, a, in a style that wasn't entirely a TV news style. It still had a lot of it because that was our skill set. Um, and those were some of my favorite things to work on. And I, I wouldn't assign those regularly to students, but if somebody really wanted to do it, I would do it. And this goes back into the 90s. I'm sure we were doing this. Um, we had talked over the years about, wouldn't it be nice if we had a documentary program at Mizzou? But there was there, there weren't the resources to you know hire people to teach it or to get the equipment or whatever it might be. So we handled people who are interested in long form work through the TV station, later through photojournalism as, as it started to do video through our convergence area when that developed. Um, but then in 2013, an alum, uh, Jonathan Murray, said he was interested in making a donation to the school to start a documentary program. And so a number of us in the TV area got together because we sort of thought initially it would be part of the television program. And I was part of that effort. And we, we kind of figured out what we wanted it to be. Um, and the, you know, the bottom line was we need one outside new professor, a filmmaker who could come in to teach this. And then we need a journalist, probably an inside person who knows the university to sort of run the program. And uh, the dean and, and my peers working on this thought I'd be a good choice for that. Um, at that point, I'd been at, at KOMU for uh, what, 28 years, I guess, at the time. And I felt like it was a good time for to try something new that I'd done a lot in those 28 years. And it was getting harder to, you know, find new challenges in, in running the TV newsroom. And so I jumped at the chance to, to start something new at age 55, I guess I was then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you're in the seven blocks of finding, uh, like, what the program is, like, how do you differentiate it from, like, Tele news telecasts and documentaries that are like a New York Times op-ed or get to be seen in theater? Yeah, that's a great question because initially, and I say they thought it would be part of television, there was, I think, a vision for some of the faculty that this would be um, like, I, I usually use the example of Frontline, if you watch Frontline on PBS. Those are, it's, it's a great program. Those are important uh, documentary type 
stories that they're telling, long form journalism, television journalism. But in terms of its style and structure, it's very much like news reporting. It's just long, in-depth, again, not taking anything away from it, it's really well done. And there were, I think there was a um, subset of our group that thought that's what our documentary program should be, that we should be producing things for, you know, as if for Frontline or whatever. I had a different take on it. And part of it was, for me, was affected by the True False Film Fest, having been in Columbia by, for four or five years, I guess, at that point, maybe, or maybe longer, maybe close to 10 years. And I was a fan of that. I missed the very first one. I didn't even know it happened until it was over, but I started going with the second one. And other than a couple of years where I had some travel conflicts, attended every year. And I you know, was seeing this new wave of documentary storytelling, this very cinematic style of documentary that was you know, what populated that festival. And it seemed to me like if we were gonna use this money wisely, we wouldn't just teach longer versions of what we were doing on television, but we would teach a whole new version of storytelling. And that was my push. And I got some pushback from it. Uh, you know, it was my push when we were discussing it. And then once I became director, it was then my responsibility to execute that. And I got some pushback from some of the faculty early on to say, you know, these don't seem like reporting. I don't remember the exact way they put it. And I'm like, no, it's, you know, this is journalism. This is reporting. This is nonfiction storytelling. We're just doing it differently. And why wouldn't we take a new approach here to broaden what the school teaches rather than just doubling down on what we're already doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. As you said, you have pushed back and that there are people that don't have, have sort of mind what a documentary is. Like, how did you, like, I know that there will always going to be some drawback whenever it happens in the documentary community, but like, how did you like not have that too much in your head or try to convince them that this is still nonfiction, that we're still speaking a truth of what's happening? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I guess I'm just not a guy that worries a lot about, you know, what people are saying about what I'm doing. Uh, and I think, you know, part of that is because, you know, it, over a, a career, it's not, it's sort of immodest to say it, but I think I've had a lot of career successes and I, you know, like to be able to tell people, just bear with me. This will be, this will be the, it'll come out great. Just give me, a, give me a chance to do it. And so I think that was the approach. And so I, and I, and I think we've done that. I think, you know, part of our goals were, and, and John Murray, who I just saw the other day, and, you know, we've had a great relationship with him. Um, he was not a, a micromanager of what we did with the money. He wanted it to be a world-class program. These are his words, words, a world-class program that, you know, would make him proud. And he's basically, you know, he's, you know, half seriously, half joking, they don't screw it up. And so that was the instruction he gave us. And I think part of the effort that I put into it and Robert Green came on about six months after I did um, was let's make sure people know about this program. And, you know, if you're gonna be world-class you need to make your mark. And so the two of us really set out to get people to understand what we were doing. We were, we were I, I think the only uh, program in the country where undergraduates get a chance to, to do significant filmmaking work. That's usually in graduate programs. And, and again, talk about pushback. I had people say, do you really think you can get undergraduates to make good short documentaries? I, was, I said, yes, we can, because that's what Mizzou does. We have undergraduates putting on our daily newscasts. We have undergraduates putting out our daily newspaper. So yes, I think we can do that. And we set out to and, and then proved that we could. And so fairly quickly, even uh, more quickly than I thought we would have, um, 
the program gained a national and I guess international reputation where people had heard of it, knew about it. And um, that was you know, part of what John asked us to do. And I think we've done that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to go a little back of how the Murray Center were always going to have a relationship with Rat Pack and Society and True False. And, like, and that's where you found Robert Greene and what made him stand out among other candidates if they applied or other filmmakers that really represent the filmmaker in chief for the Murray Center. Right. The, uh, there was a search committee to um, hire the, the job we eventually called filmmaker-in-chief, so the other faculty position. And uh, one member of that committee was Paul Sturtz, one of the founders of True False Film Fest. And he brought Robert to the table and encouraged him to apply. Um, and, you know, what was exciting about him was he was a filmmaker not terribly well-known at the time. He had had a couple of films that True False had programmed and but he was, people were starting to talk about him and he was something he doesn't have time to do as much now, but he was a fairly prolific writer about film and about documentaries. And so his, I could, I watched all of his films uh, that he had made up to that point and um, read what he was writing. And he just seemed like he had the right idea to come in and teach this cinematic nonfiction of, of term, a phrase that he coined uh, to our students. And he seemed like the perfect um, compliment to my skills because he's not a journalist. Um, he is, I, I use it often. And I think it's fit so well that, that he's the art and I'm the science of the program, that he's very much an artist and comes at this from a filmmaking point of view and has many skills and strengths in that area. And I come at this, I'm a scientist, I think in the way I view these things and I, I have this journalistic background and, a, and more or less a completely different set of skills. I mean, we have some overlapping skills, but um, and it just turned out to be, you know, the perfect match, I think. And on paper, it looked that way. And once we were able to start working together, it definitely worked out that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is, especially that you were an associate producer on Bisbee and Procession. Mm -hmm. And what were your roles as an associate producer on those two docs? Well, I, I, you know, Robert's very generous with those titles. And my role in each of those is, if you think again, I'm the science of this, logistical things related to uh, equipment and interacting and interfacing with the Murray Center and using our students, you know, yourself included on procession uh, to get involved with that. And so it was always my job to, you know, sort of facilitate what I could to help, you know, move those films down the road a little bit more. So I, I'm um, happy to have those titles, uh, uh, those credits on the film. Um, and I just did a tiny part in each one of those. Mm -hmm. As you do make sure that you provide Robert like the amount of time for the film, like how did you make sure that he has an active filmmaking career while he's teaching at Mizzou? Good question because we, when he was, um, I think we'd, we'd reached the point where we'd offered him the job and he was trying to decide whether to take it or not. And I can remember several long phone calls, like multi-hour long phone calls with him because he was, I think rightfully so, concerned that maybe he'd be um, scuttling a really promising documentary career if he moved to the middle of the country, away from New York to Missouri and you know, got these teaching duties, you know, could he go on and, and continue to, to make films? And my point to him was, and I pointed out since you know, I told you so on this, but my point was, yes, you could do that. And in fact, it'll be easier for you to continue to do that because 
you'll have the income, the steady income of being a professor here. You'll have the support of me and the school to do this work. You'll be able to incorporate, you know, students in what you do. Uh, and as I've only half jokingly said to him, you know, you never had a film in Sundance until after you moved to Mizzou and you never had a film on Netflix until after you moved to Mizzou. So his career has continued and in fact, I think gone up at an even faster rate since he moved there uh, because, uh, you know, credit to him on this, he made good use of the resources. And so I've always seen part of my role as director of the program in being able to support him to keep filmmaking because not only does it give us that um, kind of first year experience of our students being able to be with them, whether they work, literally work on the film, go out on the set and work with them, or whether they're just connected to the production as he keeps everybody filled in on what he's going on. But it's also great for the reputation of the school and the university that, you know, we had somebody on the Oscar shortlist who teaches at Mizzou. What other, what other documentary programs in the country have had that this year? Nobody. Um, and so that's part of my job, I think, is keeping all that running for all for the, everybody involved. Mm -hmm. How much of this role happens during, well, in, as a social producer, like, is it a non-set role or is it mostly like an off location through all stages of production? Yeah, you know, I will say one of the great uh, tragedies of my own scheduling was that for both Bisbee 17 and Procession, I was never able to get out to the set while he was making either one. I was, when Bisbee was shot in a very short period of time and I was in Europe during that time doing a, a study abroad program with leading students in a study abroad program. And due to just a number of things, even as close as Procession being in Kansas City, I didn't get to make it to any of them. I was, we had plans actually for me to go along on a, a final shoot they were going to do. And it ended up being a scene they decided not to include in the film, so they never shot it. So yeah, I, I, I will always say that was a great missed opportunity that I did never, I never got to the set with him. So, but I didn't need to for what I was doing in that role. It would have just been fun to have been there for some of that. Mm -hmm. It is very fun just to see not just Robert's career blossoming, but also the undergrads as well as their finding their footsteps within the Doc J program. And what are the stuff that you do in the Doc J program, certain of courses or certain requirements they have for their degrees? Well, so the, the courses are set up uh, in kind of two tracks, uh, one to match each professor. So there's a documentary theory. There are two courses that students take and that Robert teaches those. That's something I'm not qualified to teach, I don't feel. Um, and so he really um, takes students through, you know, what documentaries are, where they came from, how they're like fiction films, how they're not like those, and then gets them set on a path to kind of figuring out what they want to make and pitching their own film. The other track through the program is the production track, which are the courses I teach, which gets people, you know, everybody in our program has already been trained a little bit to do journalistic style storytelling with video and audio and such. And so part of the job is to unlearn some of that. We don't shoot documentaries in the same way we shoot TV news, for instance, uh, but still keep a lot of the good technical skills. And so I, I taught uh, four courses, four production courses that took people from the very beginning of doing documentary work all the way through completing their uh, capstone films. Mm -hmm. I do want to add that uh, there is a pitch forum similar to CPH Docs that 
myself and all the other students will eventually have to go through. Yes, we're coming up on the one as we record this. Uh, we're just two weeks away, yeah, two weeks away from the, the latest uh, pitch forum, which is very nerve wracking for students. They're going to get up in front of three documentary professionals, uh, funders, uh, programmers, producers, and pitch their idea just all by themselves right in front. They have a teaser trailer and they're going to take questions. And so it's, I think it's akin to arguing your first case in front of the Supreme Court. It's very nerve wracking for people to get up there and do it, but it's also great practice. And, you know, it, it, once you've done it, then you can do it again easier the next time. So the students are stressfully preparing for that right now, just two weeks away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I enjoy like the past rosters of parents that come like Field Vision, Charlotte Cook, and Impact Partners, Jenny Raskin. Like, this is just for myself to be honest because I love to see who comes by the Murray Center, but who will be this year's Pitch Warm panelists? Oh, I don't have them right in front of me. It would take me a minute to look this up, but um, they are, as I say, you know, I, we, we've taken to getting funders involved and, um, and programmers and such. So it's a good panel this year. I'm sorry, I don't have it right in front of me. Okay, well, I'll hopefully find out next year or it's, we can just see only after. I, I will let you know later when I have a chance to look it up. Okay, and that, um, how do you make sure that the, you give the comments and these students whenever they have like worries with their films? Um, I, you know, people know me as a guy that doesn't stress out about things, even though I know people do. I just am not a, a person who has a lot of stress or gets stressed out. And so, uh, you know, I hope by a little bit by example, I can, you know, present a calm, cool uh, head that people can see, you know, even when things get busy, it, it doesn't have to be that bad. And then I'm happy to talk people through it. I, I you know, I'm, I'm not teaching on campus this semester as I'm sort of semi-retired, but um you know, if I get a chance to chat to everybody, and I think I will before their pitch, I'll say, you know, I'll say, look, some people are going to get the thumbs down on this. And I should explain the processes. So it's three judges. Um, they have to get, then the judges in the end basically give a thumbs up or thumbs down on each pitch. They elaborate a little bit, but that's what matters is that vote. And so you have to get at least two thumbs up to be able to move forward with your pitch. If you don't, then you have to revise and come back. And so I say to people every year, I'm sure I said it to you, which is if everybody got the thumbs up, the process would be worthless. You know, we, it's, some people are going to have to get thumbs down and there's no quota or anything like that. But we want these, uh, this to be an honest exercise where sometimes people's ideas aren't fully formed. It doesn't mean it's a bad idea. It just means it's not ready for, you know, to, to travel forward without some more work. So, you know, I say to that to people ahead of time, just trying to, to blunt that. I said, if you're one of the ones who gets the thumbs down, it's not going to feel good. I'm not going to kid you about that, but it's not also not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes people get too wrapped up and think that everything is the end of the world. And it's not. If you get a thumbs down, then it just means you're going to come back to, to me and Robert. You're going to repitch. We don't do the whole pitch form again for those people. It's usually a handful of people each time. Um, and we're going to take the notes from the from the judges and see what they didn't like about it. And I tell people with, you know, without going too far down the rabbit hole here, there's three reasons that you get thumbs down. I've watched, you know, six of these now, and I know that's the case. Um, one is they just can't figure out what the film is that you have not described it well enough. And often in that case, the filmmaker has in her mind what it is she's going to make, but she just can't express it. And that's, you know, we've all been in that where like we can see something and we can't 
through words, get it to somebody else. Uh, that's probably what, most often when people get thumbs down. Sometimes they get the film, they just don't think the filmmaker can make it, that it's too ambitious or it's not something that's gonna, that's gonna be reasonable to do in the time available. Um, and both of those things you can address before you go in. You can make sure you're really explaining this well. You can make sure that you've bitten off the right size chunk here. The third one is the tough one because sometimes they just don't like the idea and they give it thumbs down, which is probably not what they should do, but they do. And th there's nothing you do about that. Um, and then, but in all those cases, whichever the three it is, they come back around and we get it worked out and, and off they go. So they don't even lose much time over it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very subjective process. Like maybe that the filmmaker didn't pitch to like the audience that might have understand their ideas. Yeah, and every year uh, we'll have the pitch forum and there'll be a film that Robert and I listened to the pitch and we're like, boy, that is that did not come out as good as we thought it was going to. And that it, you know, that it feels like the student is really struggling and it doesn't seem like the idea has been communicated. And then it gets three thumbs up and moves right along. And at the same token, there's somebody who just seems to kill it in the in the pitch forum. We think the the idea is great, that the presentation is good, and then it gets thumbs down. And so we, there's always a couple of those head scratchers every year. Um, and that's, as you say, it's a subjective process. So you never know when that'll happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did remember attending last year's, like I was laughing so much with Nathan Greggs, mm -hmm. and Eric on a road trip. And I was like, wait, what? And Nathan told me that he got two no's. Yeah, and you know, his was one of the best um, pitches, I think, just because he was so good. I mean, he, this, the student you're talking about is a, uh, improv actor and a stand-up comedian and that sort of thing. So he's comfortable in front of a crowd. And I think he was the least nervous of anybody going into it. But the, you know, it, for whatever reason, it didn't land with the um, with the panel, and so he got two thumbs down. And so, but he was able to come back to us. We did a couple of revisions, and that is his film. He's finishing it now. You know, a year later, he's finishing it, and uh, it's going to be good. We you've seen an early cut of it. I've seen an early cut of it. It's going to be a good film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just want to like segue into like the Stronger Than Fiction panel, which is a showcase. And uh, like in my past episodes, I already spoke with Rowan Mutt of Nene and the Diabolical Bumpkin and Audrey Roloff of either CIFA or Blind Faith or whatever that title is going Still to be. Still in the working title stage, but that, that they've, they've actually settled on titles uh, now because we're starting to put the program and such together, so. Okay, and what are some films like bigger side for even though it I wish you could mention all of them because I don't want you to pick like your favorite child you know yeah you know yeah I would I would mention all of them because I am excited for them so there were three films that we got to see a, a sneak preview in New York at the first look film festival so one is Nathan's film that you mentioned about his road trip with his childhood friend that um it was interesting to watch that because I and I think everybody else in the audience liked it more than Nathan did at that point that we saw where it was going and you know he I, he had made some you know kind of beginners mistakes with it there you know there was without again going into a lot of detail he sort of because of with the narration he's he's telling the audience some things at the beginning and he tells the audience basically that his experiment is a failure and so everybody watching except Nathan realized that no we let the audience discover that and make up their own mind because I ultimately didn't think it was a failure by the time we got to the end. There's an amazing scene at the end of the film that to me said, and so other people may have read it differently, 
that this wasn't a failure and it was just, he found something different than he thought he would find. So I'm really looking forward, having seen that cut last month to see where it goes with that and what he's able to do with it. Um, Cameron Geating has a film about his grandmother living in a retirement community in Florida. And we've seen this explored in a couple of documentaries uh, lately. One that, um, uh, now I'm gonna draw a blank on the name of it. Um, Some Kind of Heaven? Some Kind of Heaven, which I despised. I hope, hope the filmmakers are not listening here, but I despised that film because I thought it was, it went for laughs at the expense of the characters in the film. Um, and uh, I don't think that's the right way to tell this story. Cameron is not doing that. He's not going for laughs in his film, but he's giving us a much more um, sensitive and honest portrayal of people at the end of their lives and how they live and how they sort of whistle through the graveyard of, of the last years of their lives. And I think, again, he got some great feedback at, at first look, and I'm really looking forward to that. And then you mentioned Audrey's uh, film, who you've had on the podcast before. And so um, I've known Audrey since she was in high school. In fact, I knew her father when I was in college. He was my RA, my resident assistant in my dorm. Um, but uh, Audrey first got interested in the Murray Center while she was still in high school at, at Hickman High School in Columbia and came to see me then. And so I know she's a super creative and, and uh, hardworking person. And so this is a, a film that, again, she got a lot of great information here. It's about a musician who's a friend of hers uh, in in. Uh, Columbia, and it's going to be more than just a profile of a musician. There's a lot more going on with that character, and I can't wait to see how that comes out. So those those three right there are um, ones that I'm especially interested in because I got to hear all that feedback that they got in New York. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I know that like all these award, the the jury award winning films will eventually um, be at First Look Film Festival at Museum of Moving Image here where I'm at in New York, but mm -hmm. also um, how did the rough cut session came to be? Because I thought that there was going to be nothing from the Murray Center well, for 2022 Fest because we already played a 2021 Fest in July. Yeah, so the First Look Festival, typically we have played the uh, jury award-winning films from Stronger Than Fiction, that's our graduation film festival, uh, at the next festival, which typically is not till the next year. So the 2019, you know, films would play in 2020 and so on. Um, because of COVID and moving the festival around, the one, the 2021 festival was an outdoor festival and it happened in summer of 2021. So we had the films available from 2021 to play. We also had the films available from 2020 because the, they did not play because the festival was, uh, uh, it wasn't canceled, but parts of it were, and that students couldn't travel to New York due to COVID at the time that it was going on. So the, um, and so we had all those films have played, leaving for the 2022 festival, nothing to play, as you say, because they'd already played. And so Eric Hines, who's the curator there at the museum and, and one of the uh, perennial uh, jury members, and Robert and I were talking and I don't remember, I think it might've been Eric's idea said, why don't we do a, a rough cut review of some of the films? You know, could we bring students to New York for that? And that made perfect sense. And so we really liked the way it came out so much so that next year we should have the 2022 films to play, but we also wanna bring some of the 2023 students in to do that again. So we hope to have two programs in First Look next year, our jury award-winning films, four of them, 
and then uh, another rough cut session with three or four students. I think three was probably good. Three felt good for that. So we'll probably do three again. Yeah, to be as I attended to that rough cut mm -hmm. session, three is enough for three hours, to be honest. Yeah, so we, each film got about an hour uh, review and we had to watch the film and they were running at their current stages around 20 minutes or so. So that gave about 40 minutes of discussion. Yeah, I thought it was, uh, Great, I it kind of flew by, the three hours kind of flew by for me, but I think four hours would be asking a lot of, of uh, people to do that. But that's one of the great things about First Look is that our alumni who live in New York can come out. And so we had a number of you uh, come out to that uh, screening uh, and, and we've had great attendance in the past when we've played the finished films at the festival. So next year, the 2023 First Look, we'll have all of these things for alumni, New York alumni to attend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I enjoy how when Robert and you told me and all the other students that the pitch form pants and the jury would not view these as student films, but as you said, like I've heard in the past, like substantial films and mm -hmm. like, how do you find like the right or that year's panels outside of Eric Hines, like there was Oscar nominees from Mel Ross. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, well, and the, yeah, the, uh, the jury this year is Eric Hines, who again, curator at the Museum of the Moving Image and a, a noted film critic and writer. He's always on our, our jury because he that helps us run it. We have continuity. So we do have Oscar nominated Ramel Ross back this year. He will be a jury member. And Chloe Vai, um, who is a, uh, a programmer and, uh, and film writer. Um, and so that's our jury this year. Uh, and you know, I'll say, yeah, I usually use the term, they are substantial shorts. Because sometimes if I say to somebody, our students, you know, our seniors and our second year grad students do a, have a year to make a short documentary and people who don't really know the process sometimes scratch their head and that seems like, you know, a long time to make a short documentary. I'm like, well, they're substantial shorts. I started to call them and I think that's a good way to look at it. But um, it's part of that Missouri Method thing that when our, our very first pitch forum, uh, one of the, uh, and we had people come in at the time, we've been doing them remotely lately because of COVID, um, but we had uh, Simon Kilmurray in, who at the time was the head of the International Documentary Association. So it was the first time we'd ever done a pitch forum. He didn't know much about Mizzou. I mean, he, you know, he knew what we were doing in the program, but the program was new. And so we had the first day of the pitch forum over at Ragtag Cinema and we're walking back to campus and he and I are chatting and he says, you know, th these pitches were a lot better than I expected uh, and the, te the teaser trailers and everything. And I think that's, you know, that's what Missouri tries to do that we don't wanna be judged as student work. We wanna be judged against professional work and all of our newsrooms win awards against pro other professional newsrooms. We win a lot of student awards too, but you know, we win Emmys and we win uh, Murrow Awards and we win, you know, print, comparable print awards competing against professionals, uh, not just students. And so that was the idea that Robert and I always had in mind was that this pitch forum should be at the level of any pitch forum where a professional would go to pitch and that our Stronger Than Fiction Festival should be have films at the level that you would see programmed at any film festival that would include the work of professionals. And so I think that's part of how our program delivers for its students. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate what you're doing like you, uh, in the classroom you're on, but you also do some stuff like for True Falls and some special rat tag screens, like based on a true story conference. Like that's 
one of my favorite parts, like uh, part of, like True False Eve or True False Eve, yeah. And like explain was based on a True Story conference for those who don't know. Yeah, and that actually precedes our um, Murray Center. So that was started by uh, a few professors at the university. A couple of professors got that started 10 years ago. Uh, and they, True False was going on in March. And they said, you know, wouldn't it be interesting? We've got these filmmakers coming to town and film writers and other people. Maybe we can ha get together. And they kind of called it a, an academic conference at the beginning. And it's, I, don't, I think that scares people off. That makes it sound stuffy. But the idea was to talk about how documentaries get made and, and explore that. And so when the Murray Center started, we took over managing and programming that uh, festival. And Robert um, is, I think, a great idea man for coming up with what we do there. So uh, we try to bring in the, I mean, they're already coming to True False, so we bring them in a day early. We usually do screenings on Wednesday night. Uh, and this time we did three shorts uh, by Reed Davenport, who had, has a film, I Didn't See You There at the festival. Um, and he's a, a filmmaker with cerebral palsy. He uses a wheelchair. And so his short films sort of explored that space as, as does his feature that played at True False. Um, and it was just, the, these Wednesday night screenings have been terrific. We've been doing them lately at uh, True False and, or at Ragtag, I should say. And, um, we get a great crowd out there to see those. And then on Thursday, we have kind of an all day of panels and, and such, and, and same thing on Friday morning. And the idea has been, so some of that has been hands-on. We've had to curtail it a little bit during COVID, but we've had exhibits and exhibitions set up related to this that people could explore. We often have filmmakers come in and talk about how they made what they made. Uh, this year, uh, we, had, uh, we met in virtual reality, the filmmaker behind that, uh, give a demonstration of his VR gear and how he did it. He brought some of his cast members, his characters from the film in, and they showed how they interact virtually and we could watch them physically do that, which was fascinating. So yeah, that's been a lot of fun uh, to put together. And so COVID has made it tough. We didn't do it last year because True False moved to May and it was a an odd time to be able to do it. And there weren't a lot of filmmakers traveling in, but we're happy to be back this year and, and going forward. Mm -hmm. And how much of some of the stuff that's programming includes like recent news within the DACRA, like the latest CMSI report and the controversy of uh, the Sundance pick Jihad Rehab? Yeah, we, you know, we wait to program the pretty close to the festival for a few reasons. Uh, so, so that we can figure out which films are coming and which filmmakers. And we do try to pick up on some current issues that are going on. So we did, um, we, and, and we played it, we had sort of a, screening within a panel of one of the Oscar nominated shorts and talked about that. And um, all of those things try to pick up on what's going on in the documentary world at the time. We don't program things six months out because it would change too much. Maybe that's the news person and me too. I'm used to, to keeping the headlines fresh. So it's nice to do it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just want to add, that was great. And also just wanted to get into a little bit of uh, your book, Suspicion Signs, Effects <laughs> of Newscaster Scripts, and other long title stuff, and the movie Keep the Camera Rolling. And what is Suspicion Signs that you wrote about? Well, that, that's my PhD dissertation. So it's a pretty dry uh, read, but I guess you can find it out there. Um, it was uh, research I did into uh, how people perceive bias in uh, news presentation, TV news presentations. And so it was an experimental study uh, where we exposed the audience to 
of different levels of bias, intentional bias put into news copy, uh, and then measured their response to it, basically how much they would accept before they noticed bias. And this was done in, in the early 2000s. So the experiments were done in 2002, I think. Uh, it would be interesting 20 years later now to see as people seem more willing to or looking to find bias in news reporting how they would be now. But anyway, that's it. It's a pretty dry um, research uh, book. Uh, the film, which is in festivals now, and you mentioned at the top, just played in, or maybe I think that was, we were talking before we started, but played in Los Angeles uh, Monday night is uh, called, you know, all these titles are long, but this one is Keep the Cameras Rolling, the Pedro Zamora Way, which is a, a profile of Pedro Zamora, an AIDS activist who was on the reality show, The Real World, in its third season in San Francisco in um, 1994. And he um, was a groundbreaking figure on television. Um, he was uh, depicted in the show in his real life relationship with uh, Sean Sasser, uh, the man that he eventually had a wedding ceremony on TV with. And in 1994, that was not what you were seeing on TV. Entertainment television, fiction television, and it's featured in the film, wouldn't even show two men kissing. Uh, there was a a program Melrose Place, I think it's been rebooted since then, so people may be aware of it, but it was a popular kind of nighttime soap opera sort of thing. And there was a storyline with a, a gay character and there's a scene that um, another friend sees him kissing a man um, and the scene was shot where they were kissing and then at the last minute, the network uh, chickened out and ended up putting a cutaway of somebody watching them kiss. So we wouldn't even see them kiss on the air. And at the same time that was happening on CBS, on MTV, we routinely saw Pedro and Sean holding hands, kissing, and eventually get married. Same-sex marriage was not legal at the time in California, or I think anywhere. Hawaii was the first to legal it, but I think it was after that. Um, but so they had a marriage ceremony anyway. Um, and so he um, was sick uh, with HIV and AIDS during the filming of the program, Sicker Than People Knew. And... He actually died the day after, the morning after the last episode aired. Um, and so the, the film follows his life uh, and really looks at what America was like at that time about everything from marriage equality to attitudes about AIDS and such like that. Um, and it features the cast members of the show at the time and, and other notable names, including Anthony Fauci and Bill Clinton. So uh, the film came about at another professor at Mizzou, Bill Horner, approached me about doing it. It was his idea. He thought it would be a good team up between his political science students and my documentary students. And it was, and it got delayed a little bit with COVID and some other issues, but it uh, premiered last year, last October in Atlanta at a film festival. And now it's been in its, I think this was its 10th festival that it played in uh, Monday. It's got three more coming up. Um, and so it's been a lot of fun to be part of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do want to ask you like that, how did you talk to Millie and Hector Zamora about making sure that this um, was the person that they know of when you were making this movie? So yeah, so Millie is uh, Pedro's sister and Hector is his father. Um, they were one of the first people that we contacted and Millie who's you know spent her whole life, you know, it's been now 20, going on 28 years since he died. Um, she's tried to keep his legacy alive. He has this giant scrapbook that he kept and that she took over. And so, you know, it was one of the things we spent 
a long time going through the scrapbook and some images from the film come from that. And there's a long interview with her, you know, a long and tearful interview as she talks about everything and a very frank conversation about, you know, finding out that her brother was gay and then finding out that her brother had HIV and, um, and Hector as well, you know, Hector is um, uh, fairly elderly now and was um, not terribly strong when we interviewed him and, but he had, he had some real moments of clarity as we did the interview and he talked about that. And so I think a lot of what we got from, from Millie in particular helped guide what we knew about Pedro as we made the film and, and helped us ask the right questions of the other people we interviewed. All right, as I do also want to mention that this was a Mizumi production with not just you and Will Horner, but also the Mizu School of Music providing the score as well as um, different like journalists, different students from different journalism departments to make this happen. Like what got you into having a Mizu community made into this production? Yeah, it turned out that the uh, everybody who was in the class that Bill Horner was teaching as were in a poli-sci class, but they were all journalism students, though only one of them was a documentary student. Um, and so we did have this mix of journalism people from all different areas of journalism who were involved in it. And the students went out and they did the interviews. So when Bill Clinton was interviewed, that wasn't me or, or Bill interviewing Bill Clinton, that was the students. And same with Millie, same with the cast members and so on. Um, the music came up, I, I think that was Bill's idea. I'm pretty sure that wasn't my idea that he said, could we get uh, this music? And they had a student, a master student who took on the job of composing this and composing music for a hundred minute documentary, original score for the whole thing is quite a job. And he did an amazing job. His name's Daniel Vega. He has uh, since graduated. And so he um, wrote this entire score uh, made more difficult because typically when people are writing scores, they have more or less a finished film or something. And they, he had very little of that to go on. I, I initially said, there's gonna be a section about young Pedro living in Miami. So we need something with the Latin feel. And then we're definitely gonna talk about his death. So that should be sad. And we're gonna talk about his legacy. That should be uplifting. And that's all he had to work with at first. <clears throat> As we started to get cuts of the film finished, then we would send them to him and he had to work out the timing of how long this would be. So he did an amazing job and then he had it recorded. The musicians are all uh, Mizzou music students who are made up the ensemble that recorded the music. And it it really makes the film as people, you know, I hope people get a chance to see it. And the score, music score is amazing. Mm -hmm. As I said, this was such a collaborative ensemble. Like I wish that it could be directed by the University of Missouri School of Journalism and Political Science instead of just Will and you. Like, how did the directing credit came to be? Yeah, it, uh, you know, it, I am always quick to point out to people that I, I don't call myself a filmmaker, I call myself a journalist. And so I, I have half jokingly said I accidentally directed a documentary feature here because my original intention was that the students would work on the film and that someone would rise to the top to, to have some leadership role and that person would become the director of the film. But the, a number of delays, um, you know, made worse at the end by COVID, everybody graduated and we didn't have a finished film yet. And it, there wasn't a, a good way to kind of retain people to do that. And so um, Bill and I had to sort of take over and finish it. And so 
it didn't seem right to pick one person out of the whole group that worked on it, just call that person the director. Um, and so we just said, we'll just take that title ourselves, but I did it reluctantly, but you're right. I mean, we can't, if we sent, submitted it to a festival and said, the director is the University of Missouri, they'd be like, that, what does that mean? What, who's the actual director? And then we'd have to have that long explanation I just gave you. So easier just to give ourselves the credits, though I mm -hmm. always feel some guilt pangs over that. Mm -hmm. As you're saying that there have been a lot of students coming in, coming out, like how do you make sure that it had the same uh, like continuity and spirit while you have a, a different personnel changes? Yeah, I mean, that, and that's the director's job, which again, that's, uh, you know, I, I don't think Bill and I being listed as co-directors is wrong. I think we played the role of directors ultimately, um, but I would have rather just been a producer if, if I could have been, but it's the way it worked out. So yeah, we had, we did have classes <coughs> change and I think we were involved, particularly on the production side, uh, documentary production is not Bill's area. He was much more on the information gathering side and that sort of thing. So once we sat down with some of the students and, and particularly when we were putting together the first rough cut, um, I just, you know, I was there with them. I ended up giving myself an assistant editor credit because I think that was a, you know, I was in sleeves rolled up doing that with them through that stage. Ultimately, two people got the editor credit. Um, one student, uh, Colleen Andre, who was both in Bill's class and, and the documentary person. And then we brought on an alum, uh, Kellen Haley Marvin, uh, to do kind of the finish edit on the film. And so, She's the one that finished it, although I ended up tweak, tweaking it a little bit more once I got it back just for a couple of things we decided to change. But um, so, yeah, it was uh, that, you know, that's, I guess, where I earned my co-director credit was trying to keep some continuity through all that. Mm -hmm. I just need to ask you one more thing before I ask you the recommendation. Um, I want to ask you about aerial journalism, like what got you interested in being a drone operator? Um, I just, you know, I've always liked the technology of news gathering. That was part of what attracted me to photography in the beginning and television. And so, you know, people now probably feel like drones have been around forever and they haven't. It's a pretty new technology. I mean, just the way the government regulates it, it's only been about five years that you could get like a, a certification, a license, if you will, to be a commercial drone pilot. And even the drones that we're used to seeing so much have only been around for about 10 years or so. And so uh, Mizzou started teaching, the J school started teaching a course and I talked to the professor who was teaching at the time. I was like, can I sit in on the class and maybe come out and, and fly the drones? I'm just interested as, you know, it looks like fun. And so I did that and then um, decided to go and get my drone certification so I could do it commercially. And then that professor left Mizzou and I ended up taking over teaching the course. And so to me, it's just fun. If I travel, I was in Croatia last week and, um, I took my drone there. We were doing a documentary workshop with students there. So we did take drone shots to use in their documentaries, but it's just fun to fly. I took it to London while I was doing study abroad teaching there last summer. And we didn't need it for school. I just wanted to fly the drone around London and other parts of England. And so it's just a lot of fun to me. I, that said, I think drones are often used terribly in documentaries. Uh, they use them too much. They don't pick the right shots. A, a really good shot can be cinematic and nice to include in a documentary, but it shouldn't be the crutch that people make make it be too often. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just was going to ask you about your thoughts on drone footage and documentary because like, even though you still love doing it, it's 
not as well done. Like, how do you determine and tell students who want to be future drone operators? Like, what's the best way to use it for the story? <clears throat> yeah, I, sh I show in class uh, uh, the beginning of a documentary. I won't say what documentary it is because I'm about to to trash it. But the um, in the first 18 shots of the documentary, 15 of them are drone shots, and that is a that is the wrong approach. That is not what drones are for. They're not meant to just give you aerials to cover everything just generically. And so, you know, it, that that shot should be to give you a point of view. Sometimes it is good just to cover something. If you're doing a, docu a documentary about, you know, immigrants living in Zagreb, something we just did while I was in Croatia, a nice skyline kind of creeping forward shot, shot of Zagreb comes in handy in something like that when you have, you know, something just to set the place. And often it like changing scenes, it's a great way to do that when you're going to a new location, a drone shot of that scene can, can take place. It can also be, as I say, cinematic. One of the things we did, it's fresh in my mind to talk about the stuff from Croatia. There was a scene where we needed the main character to be walking to, she was walking someplace, doesn't matter where, she was walking someplace. And so we got kind of a fun shot overhead of her walking down the sidewalk. Uh, and it was a transition that took her from where she was before to this new place. So that's really how it should be used. It shouldn't be used to do it, you know, a tracking shot of a car. It's the same as it's used in, in fiction films. You know, if you're moving a character from one scene to another and you cut to this tracking shot of a drone flying over a car, that's a great way to move that character to a new location. And we can do that in documentaries the same way we can in fiction work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just want to add that sometimes that drone use footage is there for just for higher quality, like I read on the Drone Pockets New York Times article that Robert knows the effects of it and what to use it for fundraising for Bisbee. Uh, sure, yeah, I mean, they had, they took a drone out. Yeah, Robert uh, uh, was quoted in that piece and you can, you know, link it, people can see it and being pretty critical of drone use. And I don't disagree with anything he said there. I don't, I think he's right, but he, they took a drone out for some of their early shoots in, in Bisbee and it, they were able to get, you know, there's a mine that's central to the, the plot here and they're able to see it. And, you know, if you watch the film, there are some excellent drone shots in there. There's one when the uh, they're marching the the deportees up to the train tracks. That's a great drone shot where because it brings in this kind of non sequitur of the company owner riding in a limousine while they're marching all these people in um, in period clothing from a hundred years ago up to the to the site. So it's used well there. And he's got a couple of other drone shots in the film, not that many. There are far more drone shots in the teaser trailer that he used to raise money than in the in the finished film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also one thing I want to ask about drone footage is that it can at times like invade one's privacy. Like how do you make sure that it's at times like I would, for lack of a better term, ethical, but also make sure that it's like consent because like I know how drone footage can be used in the, not in a good term, like with the U.S. government sometimes. Sure. I, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we, there's all sorts of labels, things labeled drones we could talk about. So the, you know, there are legal restrictions on what people can do. And in most cases, we don't need to get people's permission to get their image with a drone, although drones fly high enough, you can't recognize people most of the time. So one of the first things I talk about is not so much uh, legally or invading privacy, but you know, are we disturbing people? Drones make noise. And so you know, famously, drones are not allowed in national parks. The, the federal government has decided against that. 
it's not because of safety or protecting the you know moose in the park or something like that it's because it's annoying if you're out enjoying yellowstone you don't want 20 drones buzzing overhead it ruins the experience so part of it is trying not to do that not to fly too low toward people not to do it for a long time try to do it quickly um, but you know documentaries work a lot more with consent than news coverage does and so I don't think you know there aren't many cases where I would say to fly a drone and get footage against someone's consent um, we want to warn them and then there's a legal requirement that if we're flying right over people they need to be part of the production you know the, you, you can't even ask bystanders for permission but if they're part of the production which the characters in the film and such are so you know we're definitely discussing that and and safety aspects not that we're ever going to let a drone drop on people but we did you know we flew right over the head of the person walking that i mentioned in the shot and so it was we're in another country had we done that in the us that would be legal because she was part of the production but we still care about safety and such too mm -hmm. yeah i don't think i have much to add but it's just always fun whatever you do whether it's being a feature and also figuring out when you're being semi-retired but i know <laughs> you still do stuff with mizzou school of journalism and can't wait for the remaining films that i have not heard as much from this year's stronger than fiction and yeah, coming up on may 12th so we're back in missouri theater our grand movie palace there in columbia so uh 16 films i think it is that we'll have from students playing that day so yeah i'm excited to to see that back in action too i'll, I'll be back in columbia for that mm -hmm. will it be in per, it will it be virtual too like the last couple of years or just in person? yeah it'll, it will be both so we'll have the in-person screenings on uh may 12th which is a thursday right before graduation and then we'll do a week of online screenings. We haven't set the exact dates. We're not sure which date we're gonna start and stop it just yet, but we'll work that out soon. So on our website, methodmfilms.com, you'll be able to, to see those films uh, for one week only. And the reason we do that is they go out to festivals from there and uh, festivals don't wanna run films that have played online extensively or still play online. So the festival world has come to accept that a, a brief stint like that doesn't disqualify them from playing so we keep it to just a week and that allows people who can't come to columbia who want to see them to get to see them mm -hmm. yeah you heard it, everybody sometime in may for the virtual but also um before i really let you go what is a documentary or film that you want to recommend to people that is not as well known um so I'll go to some older films, one that's just a ton of fun, um, and then another that's just sort of important for American documentary filmmaking. So the important one is, I think everybody, if they get a chance, should watch Primary from 1960, uh, which was in this country really uh, the start of the observational documentary movement. Some really key people were involved with that. Robert Drew is the director. Who was doing it. this is a t this was made for television for nbc uh interestingly enough um you can find it in a number of places i believe it's on um youtube i know uh, it's definitely on criterion channel Criterion uh, channel. i think it's also on canopy and so there's some places to see it it's only an hour because it was built for tv um but you'll see what you, you know you have to watch it in the mind of people in 1960 when television was fairly young and everything was heavily narrated by correspondents like Edward R. Murrow and people like that to see this hour-long observational look at um, 
two men running for, for, for president and John Kennedy being one of the people featured who had gone to win. So I would say that uh, for fun, I'll go just a little bit later in time to, of all things, a surfing documentary, The Endless Summer. Uh, one of my favorite things to watch ever. Uh, and it's a, it's interesting juxtaposition because it is humorously narrated by the filmmaker. Um, and uh, it follows some surfers around the world. The, the titular end, endless summer means if you keep flying based on season and crossing the equator, it's always summer and you can surf wherever you go. And they go around the world surfing and it's just pure fun. I think it's something that people haven't seen and it's corny and it's very 60s um and a little bit sexist but you know take it not too hurtfully so so take it with a grain of salt these are surfers surfing the world and looking for girls in every port but um it's just a ton of fun and it's just a uh, throwback to you know 50 plus years ago and what life was like then so there's two you know 50 60 year old documentaries that most people haven't seen they ought to get out and see mm -hmm. I'll definitely check out the end of summer soon. Like I already seen primary a couple of years ago, but thank you for coming to today's your friend, Stacy. And I can't wait for what you do next. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Today's concluding thought, my workload as an independent film podcaster and critic. If you have been wondering why this episode was not released on Friday, it is because hot dogs preoccupied my workload. I had to write some interview articles and a hot dogs column as soon as possible to include the pieces in my clips package for my 2022 Tribeca Festival Press credential application. It was tedious to add recent work and a few other samples in a 30-ish page PDF document and write an assignment letter for the application. I was happy to turn it in on May 6th before the May 13th deadline, and I hope that Sean and I can attend the festival without paying a lot of money to see movies. Unlike Hot Docs, where I can send web links, Tribeca is secured. They want circulation of the website, and I just wrote down 2000. I wonder if they have an excellent person to track down Squarespace Analytics or Anchor.fm's analytics. It is weird that they asked audience numbers to get a press pass. Hot Docs never asked me for circulation, but I hope real print is legitimate for Tribeca. You cannot rely on real print's quality by quantitative data. You should listen to my episodes with the other film people and read my writing. The required circulation of information hurts emerging film critics and press like Sean, Jonah, and myself. While no one has time to listen to several hours of real print or read all my writing, you can't put circulation as a criteria for a credential, as you need to be fair to all writers, not just the ones that are prominent and have a higher standing. I got that out of the way, and I sometimes apologize for not having the episodes released appropriately. I know that there is no need for it, and that people will understand that you need to take breaks. However, I am worried that people will perceive me as lazy. I know people will know that you can't maximize all of your time on your work, and we need to be open about that. I hope these breaks do not equate to the slowness or end of real print. It makes me want to let you know that some weeks will not have a real print episode, most of them on national holidays like 4th of July, Labor Day, Christmas, and New Year's Day. I know you need to rest from my takes, but it will create an excellent binge listening experience when you can hear all of my conversations. 
please check out the Stronger Than Fiction Film Festival online from May 13th through 19th, and that's today's concluding thought. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Real Print. This episode's music includes Continuum Mutation, courtesy of Kama, and Shimmering by Rafa Orchestra, courtesy of Epidemic Sounds. This episode is co-produced and edited by Anish Katu and Edward Frumpkin. Please check out this episode's notes and links, as well as reviews, award, and seasonal predictions and essays written by yours truly at realprint.org. That is R-E-E-L print.org. This is Edward Frumpkin signing off.